0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Sydney Opera House. I'm Ann Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's our great pleasure to present to you this evening with our wonderful co-presenters, our colleagues at the Sydney Writers' Festival, Peter Carey, in conversation with Jennifer Byrne. Um, They're going to talk about Peter's work. There'll be time at the end for questions and discussion from you. There are three microphones in the audience. Uh, When it's time for questions, a light will appear on those so that if you've got something to say, you do need to stand up and get out of your chair. Um, But, of course, it'll be well worth it. Um, At the end of the evening, Peter will be signing books in the foyer outside. Um, Matt, can I ask you to put your phones on silent? and uh, join me in welcoming Peter and Jennifer to the stage. Of course, Jennifer, you would know, a wonderful journalist, presenter of the First Tuesday Book Club. So please join me in welcoming them now. Thanks very much. Hello. Hi, hi. Thank you very much for coming out. Great to have your company. It's really nice. there's a bit of light up, so we can sort of see fragments of faces. That's great. <laughs> um, and look, what a pleasure it is to welcome Peter Carey. Um, just, you're here tonight, so I think you probably know this, but um, I'll just run through it quickly. He's written, um, by my count, fifteen novels. Is that right? Fifteen. Sorry, eighteen um, books, fourteen novels. You're on your own. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and, of course, you know, is um, there's a three short story collections. He, he has twice won the Booker Prize, the uh, only Australian to twice win the Booker Prize with Oscar and Lucinda and the true history of the Kelly Gang. He has three Miles Franklins. He has two uh, goes at the, and one of the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. He has many premier's awards and um, extensive literary prize holdings. It's a very fine thing, but I would have to say, that um, <laughs> it's a particular pleasure to have him here tonight because his 14th novel, I don't know why I bother with this number, but anyway, his 14th novel. 13th. <laughs> well, then there's a the, the children's book. Okay. Right. Fourteen. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has turned his fierce and raging talent um, mm-hmm. to a book called Amnesia. Um, and because it is so recently released, I think it only came out about three or four days ago in Australia. I'm going to do what is a sort of a strange way to start, but I think it's a good idea because how could you possibly know what it's about? So here is just the opening paragraph which Peter kindly will read, which I think pretty well sets the scene. Okay.
1: It was a spring evening in Washington DC, a chilly autumn morning in Melbourne, that it was exactly 2200 Greenwich Mean Time when a worm entered the computerised control systems of countless Australian prisons and released the locks in many other places of incarceration, some of which the hacker could not have known existed. Because American prison security was, in the year of 2010, mostly designed and sold by American corporations, The worm immediately infected 117 US federal correctional facilities, 1,700 prisons, and over 3,000 county jails. Wherever it went, it travelled underground in darkness like a bushfire burning in the roots of trees. Reaching its destinations, it announced itself. The corporation is under our control. The angel declares you free. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a, look, Taylor, it is a ripper opener. It's a ripper opener and it, I think we'd all agree, it sounds a bit like the opener to a cyber thriller. But the thing is that by page two, um, you've told us who the hacker is. She's a girl from the Melbourne suburbs. By page three, you've actually even provided a motive um, or at least as much of a motive as your narrator. Felix Moore, um, not just unreliable but unstable narrator as he is. A um, Not always Ke- sober either. No <laughs> He's one of those rare seedy journalists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so given that it's not a cyber thriller, tell us um, for those um, who yet to have the, the, the discovery, what you're doing here. Oh, that's unfair. <laughs>
1: um, well. What Felix, the, the old style journalist, uh, power to truth, wine to water, um, is convinced that the, mo- the motive for the hacker is as revenge against the United States for the events of 1975, where he believes, and I with him, that the American government and the CIA was instrumental in the, in the overthrow of our elected government and this has obsessed Felix all his life. So although I make a little fun of him by saying that, you know, maybe he drinks too much and maybe he's unreliable, indeed the book starts with him, his career finally being really effectively finished with his last lawsuit in, in, in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. So he's an unreliable narrator but I agree with him about these things. So he decides that the hacker, who happens to be the daughter of a, a woman he fancied at Monash University in 1961, <laughs> um, has acted for the reasons that he thinks appro- appropriate. And uh, is that enough?
0: Yeah, that's pleasant. <laughs> that, that, no, but that's, thank you. That is, yeah. Because I, I was going to get to it, but let's right away now, as you say, Felix Moore is obsessed. Um, He he describes himself, I think, as the last surviving left-wing journalist. And he is obsessed with the events of 1975. Um, But I wasn't sure whether this was meant to be fiction and whether, in fact, you would get very offended when asked, and do you believe this yourself? Because, yes, you are capable of writing great fiction. But it's interesting. So you, too, you share Felix's view.
1: Mm. I don't see why the United States would have made an exception for us. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, in fact, you, to support the cogency of this argument, you, you actually give a historical concept, context which goes right back to the Second World War and the Battle of Brisbane, yeah. which is why the title Amnesia, because your proposition is that Australia has simply refused to look or remember. Well,
1: I think it's very uncomfortable. I mean, and to to think that our friend and ally and, and people who, even if we mock them, we do feel affectionately disposed towards would actually have done this to us and our democracy. It's sort of unthinkable. So I think that... One of, one of the more interesting things... It's a tiny example of how we willfully to talk about it is sometime in the 80s, so that's about 10 years after all this happened, there uh, was a John Schlesinger film called The Falcon and the Snowman. And The Falcon and the Snowman was, was, was Sean Penn and I've forgotten a coke-snorting uh, guy who, who, who sold secrets to the Russians in Boyce. Mexico. Boys. Boys. Boyce.
0: Yes. Boyce.
1: And, and he was based on... Boyce, Christopher Boyce was a guy whose father was uh, I don't know what sort of American government uh, employee but someone with a security clearance and whatever and he gets a job uh, monitoring cables and Christopher Boyce in real life discovers that the American government has been screwing our government and this in the court, in everything that was said about this was the reason. With his disenchantment and rage with his own country that he did things that he did, and i saw, I saw this uh, film uh, in Double Bay, I think, and
0: I remember when we had a cinema in Double Bay?
1: <laughs> so um, we had to watch them by candlelight. It was amazing um, and, and, and then uh, and I thought, well, this is really interesting because this film's going to get reviewed. And we are always really fascinated by when things that are about us uh, occur in movies or or, or anything from the outside world. So there wasn't a single review that mentioned it. And I think that's sort of generally how we behave. We called it the coup (laughs) uh, in popular speech and then refused to say that anything had
0: happened. Um, well, in fact, made, made the suggestion that it was a CIA-engineered coup look vaguely mad. Oh, well, we, we did happen to happen. We've
1: always had an amazingly enlightened and, and friendly uh, press. Uh, <laughs> and we know, yeah, that, we sure. know that Mr. <laughs> M- Mr. Murdoch, you know, wouldn't stand in the way of truth. <laughs> uh, and if you, any of you want to go back and look at the, at the newspapers from 1975 and see the barrage of the press, for a huge part uh, fed on misinformation where varying sort of historical was sort of enacted. There was a man called Kemalani who was meant to have arrived with briefcases full of documents which would destroy the government. And he was... There was a, a photograph in the paper was him being escorted by the police with these valuable things. Nothing ever happened. But that's a sort of an example of the press sort of continuing to. Make uh, the elected government, perhaps not the most efficient government in in the world, a uh, government facing a world recession, but still made it look criminal and and uh, deserving to be removed because
0: it had done something bad. And this was, of course, nearly forty years ago, fifty years ago, forty years ago. Um, uh, this is a real case of maintaining the rage, Peter Carey. <laughs> it's never been a problem for me. <laughs> so when you said um, this is the culmination of decades of thought, so you really meant that. Oh yes. This is course. the book you've been dying to write. Oh, well. Wow. <laughs> um.
1: Yes, indeed, when I first went to live in the United States I wrote a book called The Unusual Life of Tristan Smith which attempted to deal with this notion of the big country, the culturally and militarily dominant country screwing over the little uh, country and uh, it was not my most successful book uh, in the United States. It won the
0: Age Book of the Year award, one of those many books. Thank you, I'd forgotten. Yes. Anything else? No. No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I'd like to ask you is which is the more despicable, the big country who is the bully or the little country that chooses to forget or draw the curtain over what it doesn't wish to be reminded of?
1: It's hard for me to call the little country despicable uh, and easy for me to call the big country despicable. I think that the little country has got a long history of, I mean, we began as a colony we, and we have had a long history of, of serving at being a client state to Britain and the United States. We've clearly exhibited, exhibited a huge amount of fear in our relationships to the rest of the world and a naive belief that people will protect us if we do what they want and I suppose... Now, you know, in Australia at the moment, you wouldn't see any evidence of this hysteria or fear. (laughs) Um, And, and of course, I'm away from it now, so I don't really know. But, uh, you know, I think you can think that this sort of thing will happen from time to time.
0: Yeah. But why has Australia, So I mean, you're mapping out this client state versus kind of soliciting, uh, begging, State, Is it, isn't that also Australia's responsibility? Yes, of course, it,
1: of course it's our responsibility and then, you know, one of the reasons why I feel called upon to write this book, you know, well, really I want to write a novel and I'm looking for something to write about, it's the truth. But um, <laughs> I don't want to make the novel sound too utilitarian in its intent either. So that's why I'm sort of backtracking yes. on this a little bit. Uh, but, yes, of course it's our responsibility.
0: Well, I mean, it's also, yeah, it's very funny. It's yeah. extremely funny. And I'm going to... The, you wanted a little bit more reading. I'm going to ask Peter actually to, to do a slightly longer reading, which is um, to give you a sense of the voice. Because voice has always been... You do great voice, Peter.
1: Well, the, the, vo- the voice that I do works best when it's in your head, not when I try and be an actor. So um, what I mean is the voice is how the words on the yeah. page are imagined and this by is the, readers.
0: This is the voice of... Felix Moore, who really is the man who, who tells us this story. So
1: th- this is Felix after, after his journalistic career has finally been brought to an end in the Supreme Court of New South
0: Wales. And he's, uh, he's, what he's doing is he's describing the man who's commissioned him to write this very favourable um, uh, book book. Uh, or to to plead the case for for the Angel Worm woman so she won't get extradited to America. Does any of this sound at all familiar to you? And I should remind you this is a man who was himself approached by his publisher and asked to ghostwrite the Julian Assange, I, I could
1: correct that a little bit. I've been going around correcting that little Have thing. Have you? Heard? But we can leave that for we'll the moment. will come back to that. Let's just say it, it, it needs to be finessed a little.
0: So we want <laughs> we want to hear now the uh, the voice of Felix Moore, which will give you an idea of that this is not as sober and sombre a book as um, as we are intimating.
1: A five star hotel might seem an unwise venture for a bedraggled outcast to lick his wounds but the Wentworth was favoured by my old mate, Woody Wodonga Towns. My dearest friends all exhibited a passionate love of talk and drink, but of this often distinguished crowd, it was Woody Towns who had the grit and guts. He had attended court every day, although he had to fly 700 kilometres from Melbourne to get there. Any fight I had, he was always by my side. And when I had endured the whacking from the press, I found him where I knew he would be, where he had waited on almost every gruesome afternoon with his meaty body jammed into a small velvet chair in the so-called garden court. The moment he spotted me, he began pouring champagne with his left hand. It was a distinctive pose. The heavy animal leg crossed crossed against his shiny thigh. The right elbow held high to ward off the attentions of an eager waiter. I considered my loyal friend's exposed white calves, his remarkable belt, his thick neck, the high colour of his cheeks, and I thought, not for the first time, that it is Melbourne's great talent to produce these extraordinary 18th century figures. In a more contested space, life would compress them, but down south at the Paris end of Collins Street, there was nothing to stop him expanding to occupy the frame. (laughs) He was a Gilray engraving, indulgence, opinion, power. By profession, my mate was a property developer and I presumed he must sometimes, be sometimes involved in the questionable dealings of his caste. My wife thought him a repulsive creature but she never gave herself a chance to know him. He was both a rich man and a courageous soldier of the left. He was a reliable patron of unpopular causes and, although he was possibly tone deaf, chairman of the South Bank Opera Company. He financially supported at least two atonal composers who would otherwise have had to teach high school. (laughs) He had also bankrolled my own ill-fated play. Woody's language could be abusive. He did occasionally spoil his philanthropy by demanding repayment via small services. But he could be relied upon to physically and legally confront injustice. In a time when the Australian Labor Party was becoming filled with white-collar careerists straight from university, Woody was old school. He did not fear the consequences of belief. Oh.
0: I love that and and you mentioned uh, early in that the, the Paris end of Collins Street, I think that's the thing that is so extraordinary about this book because whether you grew up in, in Melbourne or Sydney or in my case both, the details are pitch perfect. Um, I'm, it, the, the world of Carlton in the 70s, um, Sydney as you remember it. What I wonder, how did you remember all this or did you bring up all your old mates in Australia and say, well, just, you know, fill me in? How did you get this so absolutely right? Because it covers about, you know, four decades.
1: Well, have you ever considered for a moment how much garbage you're carrying in your head? <laughs> I mean, we, we, do carry, we do carry our lives with us and... Um, they don't necessarily go away. And, of course, if you're writing a novel, you've got two or three years to think about it. And and you can look at Google Maps, even after the streets have all changed, so that can be very misleading uh, to do that. Uh, I think we we carry a lot with us. We carry, you know, uh, our lives with with us in our heads. And I might not have known to what a degree I was doing that until I started to write this. And it was quite... um, I mean, writing a book's not always a lot of fun, but it was sometimes really rather giddy and, and lovely to be sitting in New York and realise like I had all this...
0: I wondered, with, yeah. In, ...within my grasp. And did you feel nostalgic? Because like, well, you, were, you were one of those guys who was around in the 70s. You were... I mean, you were 32. You were, you were working, but you were starting to write mm-hmm. when Whitlam went down. Um, I mean, did you feel nostalgic for that man? that time? No. (laughs) What did you feel?
1: I felt amazement when I'd finished the book uh, in the sense that if you look back, look at the society, the aspirations at least of the society as it existed at that time and what we would think might be possible and what Gough Whitlam elected without a cabinet did in seven Days almost, uh, yeah, to to recognise China, pull our troops out of Vietnam. And I can't remember all the hundreds of things that he did. The sense of possibility and optimism and even altruism that was there is sort of un- unthinkable in today's, you know, uh, more right-wing uh, frightened climates. And uh, for people reading it here, I think. I didn't even intend that. I didn't even think about that. But when I'd finished, I was amazed by that. And I don't know whether I feel nostalgia for it. Maybe it's more like sort of indignation or, or disappointment that we can't uh, hope to hope those things
0: again and soon now. Really? Yeah. You, do you think it was such a magnificent time? No.
1: I, you, you, well I think, well, the, the thing that I think is that we had the power and the will to wish for better things for a fairer society and a juster society. The the time was of course not beautiful and and and, uh, and it had its own levels of, during the years of the Vietnam War, levels of fear and rage and, uh, that were frightening times in, in many ways. But I'm just saying that, uh, you know, I if you want to sit here tonight and you want to think think that Australia will be transformed to be a a fairer, better place tomorrow, oh, I don't think you can do that. Maybe you can. Mm. Um, I don't feel... I I feel there was an optimism that existed then. And, of course, it didn't work and the the, the Whitlam government came to power after a world recession and was unable to easily fund. In what it expected, reasonably expected to be able to fund. But still, I think that optimism is really important. It was amazing.
0: And the world has changed so dramatically because, I mean, the, the as I said, you, you, you really bookend in some ways in terms of events, the book with it start, time wise its start, mm. time-wise, it's the, the Battle of Brisbane when, when American servicemen behaved appallingly. There was rape, pillage mm. and murder as it turned out mm. and basically, you argue that the the police, everyone turned their eyes, and, and indeed mm. there was censorship, so this couldn't be covered.
1: Oh, it couldn't be covered. No, they were allies, and and I I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it all started with the American servicemen either, but uh, certainly there were some bad eggs, I suppose.
0: And and you take it up to um, the book is twenty. 10, mm. but in fact it's some of the revelations came after that, the, or the extensive nature of American uh, basically surveillance. Yes,
1: indeed. I mean, I, start, I, st- I started writing it um, after I had had a meeting with my American publisher, Sonny Mater at Knopf, and we, we were talking about Assange, and I was saying, what a you know, significant figure that I thought he was. and. And that's not something I, I think less of because he skips or, or, or smells or might be unstable in certain ways. I think he's historically a really significant person. And I, I was, what I was talking to Sonny about was that he was Australian and no one was noticing that. And indeed the Americans were sort of saying he was a traitor and I was saying, how in the hell can he be a traitor? He's not American, he's Australian. And, and then I started to think of his age, I knew a little bit that his mother had been on, on the left in politics. Uh, Magnetic Island, Queensland, certain things that made feel familiar and that's now the thing that my publisher then said and he was the one that later went on to poor chap uh, to commission the, the, the biography of Assange, he was one of the three publishers that did and withdrew from it. He said to me, I don't suppose you'd like to write the book. So he did say that but it lasted about a second And it was like one of those things, like smoke. And I said, I don't think so, do you? And he said, No. So, um, well, the the point is, you wouldn't want me to. You wouldn't want me to report anything. Uh, I am
0: not a report. I don't have the skill to do that. No, you allegedly said, you. I didn't do it. You allegedly said you did. You no to the job because you said. Two control freaks, that I did, would oh, never work. I well, did if you're going to come up with a crack like that, of course it's going to be reported. That was really good. Oh, I, got, I got a big mouth. I get into trouble. <laughs> well, in fact, I have noticed on your tour so <laughs> far, you are having a tremendous time. Maybe there's misreporting about Assange. Anyway, that was misreported. Yes. He did ask you if you'd do it. Um, he just said, "Quickly, um, <laughs> you've, you've tickled up. You've tickled up the publishers for rolling over for Amazon." That was weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> that counts as a book tour. You've um you've what else have you done? You've you've got stuck into the Book of Prize judges or the Book Prize organizers, beg your pardon, no. um, for taking on the Americans. I mean no, are no, you No
1: have no no for for for, for being a corporation, being concerned about their corporate branding in the United States, which really isn't the concern of the writers of literature. The man corporation is is, 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 a, is a financial, I don't know what they do, they're hedge yes. funds or something. So it's in their interest as a corporation having paid all that money to all these revoltingly overpaid writers to, the, to, to, to have a brand that works in the United States. That's why, that's why the prize then asks American writers in. It's got nothing to do with literature. And there are plenty of prizes for American writers and I'm a, I'm a I think I'm called an academician for the the Folio Prize in which, you know, I nominate American prizes for for a prize that has English writers and Australian writers in it. I'm all for that. I'm just not against the the book of Man Corporation uh, using their branding for what their interests that are against the interests of a very historically really interesting prize which is, you know, I think defined to a great deal not just by by the by, by the UK but by the Commonwealth. And Selman Rushdie has a great phrase: "The Empire writes back," and, and, and that. <laughs> And that is one of the, the distinguishing qualities of the Booker Prize and the interesting nature of the Booker Prize. not something that could ever come out of the United States. So it should be, have been left just to be its own unique self.
0: It sounds to me like you've been having you know, quite a good time though causing trouble and if you don't come and cause some kind of trouble tonight, I'll be really disappointed and take it personally. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Cultural, <laughs> cultural flavour. The whole notion of cultural flavour. What does that mean? What is an Australian cultural flavour? I don't think I said Australian cultural. Right, a Commonwealth cultural. You're trying, you're trying to
1: put words in my mouth. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I think. I think that. Well, I was. I think if you look at American literature, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to define the whole history of American literature, but one of the distinguishing things about American literature is that it is curious of and welcomes the voices of minorities and people who are part of that sort of huge mixture of peoples, which is the United States. So American literature is very interested in the voices of the unrepresented that make up its culture. That makes for a certain texture to – it doesn't explain every single writer that comes along and it's part of American literature, but it's a, it does affect it. And, and, but the, 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 the Booker Prize is something else. I think it really has a lot to do with empire, long gone, but still uh, empire and colonialism and the voice the voice of the periphery speaking to the centre. It produces different bodies of work. Now, these are not the only two prizes in the world. The Americans have the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, which are totally American prizes, and their sign. And we have the Folio Prize. There are so many prizes. Uh, it's a wonder we're not all riding around in limousines. But uh, it's, we're not.
0: While we're talking about the Booker, um, of course it's because of great excitement here that um, Richard Flanagan won yeah. his first Booker, yeah. his only Booker. Is that a genuine smile? You yeah. said to me you're a very competitive man.
1: Yes, I, I, yes, I am. And we had that conversation. In Adla- Adla- but the, and we are a mean competitive a lot of little people. <laughs> but, 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 but the thing about Richard and that everybody I know was really really happy and there are things sometimes when you can, uh, an exceptional person will allow you to feel that you're a better person than you are because you'll feel happy for his success.
0: <laughs> You've risen above yourself have you, Peter?
1: I, <laughs> I, saw, I saw Richard um, in New York where a friend of, Patrick McGrath was introducing him on stage and we all went out and got very drunk, but it was not enough for Richard and Patrick, who then <laughs> went off to the streets of Soho and ended up in the Raccoon Lodge or whatever it's called. And we were all then hoping that he was going to win and sort of celebrating in advance. And then I saw him in London a few... about a week before the prize. and We just wanted him to win. Yeah. And
0: now, you came out publicly and said you wanted him to win. Yeah, just was... as well he
1: did it, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> just as well. One of the things he said, though, when he, when he collected the prize, he did say... Kerry is the greatest Australian writer, um, but he went on to say he, like me, grew up in a country um, uh, where we don't, where we didn't have our own culture, a colony of the mind. That's what he said. Was that was that true? For well, of course, you? I told him to say that. <laughs> well, he was very obedient, um,
1: Peter. Well, I think I think it's true. Yes, I would have felt that. I mean, when I began, when I began to read. Uh, I mean, having left school and failed as a science student at Monash University and gone to an advertising agency and fallen amongst writers and began to read and then write, it wouldn't have occurred to me to really read any Australian literature because I knew it wouldn't, couldn't be any good. So that's a sort of a really damaged way to think about your country and yourself. Oh, I'd read Patrick White because I thought he was probably all right. But I really had absolutely no interest in Australian literature. And all of the books I read were not Australian. So when Richard sort of talks about what culture or literary culture we had and how we thought about it, but firstly, in my case, that speaks to an enormous sort of a, sort of a damaged mm-hmm. sensibility, which is that we, we, we're not really very good. And, uh, and I certainly had internalised that. And I certainly grew up. Uh, believing that, you know, the real culture was elsewhere in Europe and particularly in the United Kingdom. Um, and that was a long, long time ago. There probably wasn't even a dandy cinema <laughs>
0: in
1: Double Bay back then.
0: <laughs> um, so therefore, are you an Australian writer? I mean, would, would well, you, ha- in terms
1: ha- Well, let me ask you something. Yeah? Have you read my work?
0: I have. Not oh. all of it, not everyone, but well,
1: a lot well, of it. Well, you're, you're, a a great p- deal of it. you're in a better position to answer the question. I mean, I think if you...
0: I think I, you are. I, yeah, I, I
1: think, I think, you think are. so. I think so.
0: I think you are. Right. But I think, you know, what...
1: I'm certainly not an American writer. No. I think that's really clear. So <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm not an American writer... What
0: was that? Why? No, what,
1: no, what yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking. No, know. but you... Uh, I but get, you've said I, I, I guess I have to be an Australian writer if you'll have me. I suppose that's about <laughs> that's about it because
0: I can't be any other sort of writer. Yeah. No, it's just when you t- you talked about Parrot and Olivier, which is yeah. the book you wrote two before mm. Amnesia, and um, and it was just I, I I read what you said. You said only an Australian writer could write that, and but I just thought, what is what are you getting at? What is it that well, an Australian writer? Well, can if you do? think about the
1: book, I mean, I, th- there I was living in Manhattan, and the years of Bush and Cheney. And uh, one spends a lot of time being, as usual, angry and frightened, you know, normal state. And um, and I started to think about the society I was thinking of and I thought about how my American friends thought about them, themselves and democracy and freedom. And I thought about uh, the Tocqueville's great book about America and the... Uh, The story seemed to me that there's this French aristocrat who comes to the United States and thinks everything is really, really admires American democracy. And and he got it. And not only did he get it, he wrote a book. And that book was studied by American students forever, uh, which reinforced that notion of his admiration of American democracy. Well, of course, when you read Democracy in America, it's not true. Uh, Tocqueville was very critical of the United States. And, indeed, when you read it, you see he's predicting many of the things that were happening outside my window at the moment. So I thought, well...
0: Specifically, which is districts, how could a mob of people who are not classy, not educated, educated. how could they be trusted to make a decision about leadership? Which was a valid question. Yes. It was in the time of George Bush, for God's sake,
1: you know. (laughs) So Tocqueville had seen George Bush coming, you know. century before or more. but So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting then to, 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 to take this on? And this was a way of me engaging with the United States, which I was living there and having actually two American sons becomes something that you really want to engage with. But my engagement was, it wasn't from really from the inside. I, I, so I had my imaginary French aristocrat who was rather like Tocqueville and I had Parrot who was an English guy. who was a pretty Australian sort of... Uh, Englishman, knockabout bloke, and knockabout sort of a Picaro sort of a fellow, and, a crook, and, a and, and so I used I used them to look at the American society and these ideas and so on. And later, when I thought about it all, I mean, they're both outsiders. Uh, they they are looking at this society from the outside. No American writer would have even thought to approach the problem like that, because naturally they approach from the inside. No French writer would have even occurred to think about it. Um, So, and I don't know who else would have thought to. And I I, I think, well, in the end, you know, an Australian writer wrote this, and I don't know who else would have. So it's an advantage you
0: have. Yes. Just before we we left, you were talking before about um, when you started reading during your time working in advertising, I just want to take you (coughs) back before that a bit, when you, you grew up in Bacchus Marsh, which um, is, a, is a place not far outside Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and your dad sold cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what did you read then? What, when <laughs> you were growing up, did you read? Oh,
1: Magic Pudding. A.A. <laughs> uh, Milne. Uh, Rudyard Kipling. Bible. Really? Sure. Well, you didn't have to read it for yourself because people would be always standing up and reading it for you. <laughs> um,
0: what made you? So, so you you like books? Not really no. particularly, but you know, I liked like the Perry Como show too. So. <laughs> but reading about so many authors um, talk about how they you know wrote when they were six and seven. They were passionate. <laughs> they locked themselves in cupboards and they were. Oh. Whereas it seems to me that your period of intense engagement came much Much later. And you wrote and you wrote and and you said this lovely thing that each time you started a new novel, you have such high hopes. (laughs) That's true. And they were all rejected or resisted or not even considered. What kept you going? Well, two things,
1: and I think that a low, uh, the, the books were all failures. Somewhere along the way, I was given something by somebody who encouraged me in some way. I mean, Geoffrey Dutton, uh, who was then at Sun Books, and I've forgotten the, the quarterly, they published and edited too. So different things happened, You know, or, 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 or I had a little excerpt from a book published in an anthology and it was mentioned in a review. Uh, and also because every... T- By the time anything, I was getting rejected, I was already into a new book that I knew was better. And and so I didn't care about that because I was already, I I wasn't even interested. that went
0: on for what, 10 years, 10 or 12 years?
1: Uh, Well, I started writing really seriously in 64. My first book of short stories was published in 74. Uh, Some things happened along the way. But 10 years, you know, it's, it's about right. You know, if, if, if uh, God forbid, you know, that you know, I, I was being called to operate on your brain, you wouldn't want me to have been working, you know, studying for less than 10 years, you know, <laughs> so, so, you know, it takes a long time to learn to do it. And I think 10 years is quite a, quite a decent and normal amount of time to practise and begin to learn, begin. When I finally published those short stories, Well, I was confident enough in a a silly sort of a way, but I was really at the position of really learning to write. I'd I'd written these things that sort of worked.
0: So you never lost hope and confidence. mad, isn't it? It's amazing.
1: Looking back, yes. Yes, it is.
0: But there was always something
1: happening, you know. I mean, if you get a little encouragement from somebody, uh, um, it really matters a great deal to you and I think, you know, certain willfulness and refusal to face, you know, what's really going on, that you're being rejected. I wasn't thinking I was being rejected. Did when people wrote to me and said, we can't, we're sorry, we can't use this at this present time, <laughs> I'd think, well, they can't use it at this
0: present time.
1: <laughs> and I really, really did think that. I, I wasn't offended, you know.
0: Is that one of the reasons um, that you, that, you know, you? You teach now at the um, University of New York. You teach writing. Is, is that your kind of way of giving back?
1: Well, it has that effect, yes. Um, I really enjoy teaching and I'm really very proud of what we've done. You know, Hunter College is like this, it's a university which the bulk of the students will be first generation, the first people in their, in their, their families that have been to university, which by, by the way was common. When I went to university, we were all the first people in our families that had been to university. But they're, they're the children of immigrants. Uh, it's, not, it's not like the Ivy League. But it's a really, really exciting and interesting school. And they're MFA program in creative writing, which I've been allowed to run. And i have put a terrific faculty together of wonderful writers. It's small. So we bring in... The, the fiction class is 12 people, and that's it. And there's the same for poetry and the same for memoir. And to, we bring in six students every year and six graduate. To get those six students, we have an open house and then we have the admissions and we get about 500 applications for six places. So we get to choose, we often are wrong about who we reject and who we accept, but just the same. We get to choose people who tend to be in their late 20s, 30s, who know what risk they're taking with their life, who've wanted to do this, who've, who've rejected the rejections. Um, and it is a great pleasure to work with them and it's a thrill to work with them. And, you know, it's the only reason that I, 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 this trip to Australia is so short is because I have to get back. I can miss, skip one class and they'll forgive me, but I can't skip two. So I've got to get back and... And hope I'll read their stories on the plane going back. But um, they're great. And they get published. Phil, Phil Cloyd, one of, the, one of our s- recent students who, who wrote, um, was a marine, who, who wrote a book called Redeployment, which has just been shortlisted for the National Book Award. You know, mm. He was sitting in our, you know, as a student uh, two years ago. And there are a lot of students that are there now that won't be published for another ten years because everyone has their own pace but they're good, they're great, and they look after each other, and we, it's small enough so we can look after them.
0: It's, it's nice hearing you say, because in fact a lot of people when you um, ask them about teaching writing, because I think for a lot of readers there is, there is some level of slight sardonic, which is, yeah, yeah, sure you can't teach writing. Um, uh, it's, they're not as enthusiastic. I mean, you obviously really love doing this.
1: Well, there are a number of things. There are a number of people who, who make comments about creative writing programs who've either never been in one and never seen one and have a notion that they would read from somewhere or there are people who have taught cynically or not well in a creative writing program or there's somebody who actually, you know, not, you can't give anyone talent. We, we don't go and sort of look to find untalented people. And it's not the way we go about. We go looking for talented people and we also look for people who've got will and really have got some guts because it's the will that's probably more important than the talent. So we're not trying to give them talent and we can't give them will. Uh, but to say that it can't do anything would be like saying that uh, there is no role for editors on earth because really the great deal about what our process is is really of, of being being an editor, or like being like editors sitting around. You, and you can teach people to pay attention to certain things, like the, the way, order in which they say something so that if you're a reader of a story, you start off and you're in a dark room. You don't want to enter the story bumping into the furniture because you didn't know it was there. So there's a whole lot of stuff about writing, which is really just... We probably save them... A couple of years of life they'd get there anyway
0: I'd like to ask you a, a specific writing question but about your own writing uh, and it's what struck me in reading amnesia is you know you've always been very good on voice um, and and uh, you're very vivid and in fact I, you know for many like many of us I think probably when you were at school you were always sort of about like verbs you know like doing words and and what I had noticed very much with amnesia is, it's not particularly verby, but it fit. That, but the sentences are so springy; yeah. they're so full of they pulse. they it's almost like they're radiating energy. So they're they're doing sentences. Yeah. How yeah. do you do that? What what have you done to those sentences? Are they, are you, have you edited it 20 times? Is oh, it because you're just good at it now? There's a very style, there is a Carey style.
1: You're editing continually and and the, I mean, when when I was younger and and, and I'd listen to people talking about being spare with their prose and getting rid of words, I'd think, well, fine for you. (laughs) I'm I'm not interested in doing that at all. But as I've got older, I've been, I take a lot of pleasure from just getting rid of anything that isn't doing anything. You know, everything, every word in the sentence, needs to be there. And if I can say it in a more compact or reduced sort of way, I will. And and that also being sometimes impatient to do that, you can sort of you can create something that maybe is formally formally strange but has but has vitality by just sort of nailing together the two things that need to be joined together somehow. And 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 that quality, I'm very pleased that you would say that and I'm flattered and thank you. Really? Because that's what I spend my, a lot of my days doing. Um, not making things spring. Well, that's the, 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 the effect of that is to make things spring. And um, the effect of wanting, maybe wanting to make something new and wanting to get rid of everything that isn't doing anything and wondering if you can't join
0: two things that have not been joined before for the first time, I don't know. something like that. And when you're doing that, is your predominant sense of having fun or doing hard work?
1: Well, I think it's impossible to generate, often, yeah, I mean, often I'm doing, those sort of things are, in a funny way, easy to do. So when it's not like you've got to invent the scene, which is hard to do, or worry about the character, which is hard to, all those things. I mean, it's a thing of just feeling that it's not quite good enough, and so it's something you can, it's not hard work, but it's satisfying and, that doesn't solve any of the big problems you might be facing, but it, it, it does. And I'm, I'm a sort of impatient person, and, and so I think the prose contains some of
0: that mm-hmm. quality as well. You say you're impatient. I noticed that, um, back to numbers, that you have written four books in the last six years. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah?
1: Well, it might have been I've got pub- the figures. Yeah, well, it probably you might be right about published. Sorry, published. Because I couldn't have written them. That, that, Pub- would mean I, that would mean I couldn't write that quickly.
0: Illegal Self, 2008, mm. and then there's Parent, mm. and then there's Chemistry yeah. of Tears, and then this one. That's yeah.
1: six years. There's all sorts of reasons why things might be I published I just wondered if you were
0: it. starting to worry about your age and you thought, I've just got to get oh. a move on. Oh,
1: yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah? Yes, of course. But, but, but I think I'm writing a book about once every two years, dep- depending. And, That's and, quick. Well, it's just been well, all my life. It's been Bliss took a year. Uh, Iliwaka took three years. Everything else is mostly taped. But it's, then it becomes to do with publishing seasons. And you might have a reason why you don't want to publish that book. For You might want to sit on it for a little bit. <laughs> we can deal with that. Um, so I think the, my rate of production is about the same. Am I, am I concerned about getting older? Yes. Uh, the, 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 is it going to make me write faster? No, not really. But, you know, if you're 70 one, and I've been claiming I'm 72 probably just to get used to it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you know. Um, <laughs> then you think, well, how many more books can I write? I mean, how, how many books can you write before you lose your wits or have a heart attack and die or whatever? So it's no longer can you expect to keep on writing forever. It'll be, it'll be a finite number of books. So
0: one thinks about it, Yeah. This is a book which in, you could argue will be offensive both to Australians because you, we're chumps, and the Americans mm. because they're bullies. Mm. Do you ever consider that? And it's also, I mean, it is a very political argument well, that you're making. Well,
1: that's uh, sort of an ideal circumstance. I wouldn't like to consider that, no.
0: <laughs> You did not <laughs> consider it? Well, it's a, it's a sort of a risk. You really. Oh, and you've offended Rupert Murdoch, too. <laughs>
1: Uh, uh, so, so, so you really don't want... I mean, you, you want people to like you, really. He is a pathetic little creature who wants to be liked and, uh, and just because you have a habit of saying unfortunate things, well, that doesn't help you. That's well, ultimately... I'm still won't...
0: waiting, Peter, but we're going to questions in about five minutes and yeah. you still haven't actually said anything appalling. Good, good. <laughs> See? Well, that's why I'm having such a good time. <laughs> Um, no, but seriously, did you, did you think of the impact that would have? Well,
1: <laughs> any negative impact that it might have, I really couldn't afford to think about.
0: Mm.
1: Did you care? Well, it depends on how serious it gets. As well, yes, my wife know, said, now here's another country we can't live in. <laughs>
0: I mean, it is, it is quite a strong allegation that basically um, the Assange revelations were an act of revenge against...
1: I don't believe that about Assange. I believe it about my character. Yes, Felix. Felix I Assange. really don't believe that about Assange at all. But it was how I thought and interpreted what Assange had done. I really wouldn't presume and I, don't, I think it's way too simplistic. So, but for my book looking at Assange and thinking about Assange, I created a character who at least the journalist, Felix Moore, could interpret in that way that you've just mentioned. But I don't think that's Assange's story. Mm. OK.
0: But you do believe that the CIA were behind the Whitlam coup, or behind Whitlam dismissal? Sure. Yeah. I was just wondering, just checking. Um, do you... Do you think that um, that any good will come out of shining a light on the american australian relationship do you yes. think it will make people think more deeply i think it will have
1: created a work of art that didn't exist before
0: yeah <laughs> yeah but do you... so we hope
1: that does some good
0: yeah but do you want to provoke do you want to provoke debate My...
1: I'm driven by these things, but I long ago ceased to have a, uh, a, a dangerous view of, u- of literature being utilitarian, of having a use that it will achieve social change. I mean, I think if you want to achieve social change, you run for parliament or go out on the streets. You don't write novels, normally mm. speaking. Uh, I do write novels and they've all been driven by some sort of political concern of one sort or another. but. Uh, I mean, I don't notice, say, for instance, I wrote a book called Illyweka, which, which is really was built on the notion that we are a country that have always been very poor on inventing and manufacture, but very good at selling our, our um, raw materials. This also would not be appropriate at this particular time of our history. Um, <laughs> and, in the ca- and in the case in that it was they were selling pets, birds. They were exporting birds illegally and they ended up being pets in their own pet shop. So I've been thinking like this for a long time. Of course, no one really noticed that I did that. Yes. So I've made something. The core of it, the the scaffolding, it is a sort of political concern. But the book was basically read as a sort of a celebration of Australian character. So my intention and the way it's read will not always be the same thing. And I don't think that did anything to prevent uh, the export of coal anywhere.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair response. But, I mean, you have, there have been a number of books. As you said, you've mentioned Tristan Smith and basically Wacker. And, and in a way, I don't know, the, the, the mapping of the relationship between Australia and America has mm. always interested you, hasn't it?
1: Well, I think that the mapping of the relationship between this country and another country that we've, I mean Oscar and Cinder, Jack Mags, you know, is the relationship between Britain and Australia. Yeah. And
0: uh, well, but yes, but colonial, the colonial relationship, and in a way, what you're what you're saying with America is that's just our new colonial connection. Well,
1: yeah. (coughs) So
0: yes, all right. (laughs) So um, is it true in that case that I remember Tom Keneally said to me not that long ago that that. um, we're all writing the same book. Each book is the same. It is connected. It is all one book. People say that about writers. Would you say that about Carries? No. No? No. But some really great
1: writers, you know, you can clearly (laughs) think we're always writing the same book. You can think Kafka spent his entire life writing that book and he's a great writer who changed the way we look at our whole world and changed literature and... uh, I have no quarrel with that. I hope I'm not in that way. At no, least, I, w- I mean, I wouldn't
0: have thought so, but I wouldn't have thought all Tom Keneally's books were the same either. So it was just a notion I hadn't come um, across before. I'll let Tom speak before. for himself. All right. <laughs> he's old enough. He's, yeah. he's older <laughs> than you. He's, he's late 70s. Um, when, uh, <laughs> when you come back home, um, your other home, what do you do first? What do you like to do?
1: Uh, it, it normally would involve some some sort of seafood. <laughs> and uh, by, by the time I was... I landed at 7 o'clock, my friend Leon, who's here today, as I was landing, Leon was at the fish markets, which was the sweetest thing, and he came back with Sydney rock oysters and, and prawns. So... And I don't think we sort of really did wait till 12 o'clock to start eating and drinking. But uh, always. <laughs> it's always the food... But uh, and it's always to see people. I mean, that's really nice to come and not have your relationship with your country through you know, a hotel, you know, to have it with friends. And
0: it's been a it's been an up and down relationship. Have you found it hurtful at times?
1: Oh, hugely. But I th- I think the, rela- the what we you know, what we're talking about is you know, media responses to my life in certain ways. I think there's. I think it's a real it's, it, one is really mistaken to try and and to have a relationship with your country through the media at the time of a book book publication. I mean, it's insane, and it isn't what any proper. So the, not, the 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 best things are the things that it's not to do with publication, and it's not to do with you just come and you spend time with people and like you like anybody else. And the pleasures are the pleasures of everyday life.
0: Is it, st- is it a place you will return to, do you think, or you are to see what the future it, brings?
1: Well, life gets very, you know, like one gets snookered occasionally and, and uh, in terms of all of the different forces in one's life, uh, I think, I've, you know, one... New York's full of people who, who, who come from two places and people that mm. live with this sort of low-level pain or anxiety all the time and that becomes their life. So I've been one of those people for a while and maybe I'll continue to be one. I, I can't see for the moment how, how I would be able. I've got two sons. My wife is an English woman who's a New York publisher. It doesn't really look... It doesn't, look, it to doesn't look too easy for me in, in, in the <laughs> short term.
0: No, it doesn't. Are you working again on the next book? Yes, I am, yeah. Can you say anything about it? It's very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> It will it be bouncy, will it be springy?
1: (laughs) It'll be springy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I am going to open up the um, uh, room for questions if you have. Uh, And there is one microphone there and one up the back and one over that way. Um, So if you'd like to come to the microphone and um, this is your opportunity to ask Peter Kerry whatever you like. As long as, Run and it. in fact, preferably something provocative so that he will actually be offensive before we finish up tonight. Don't push it. <laughs> <laughs> <It's laughs> you saying the book hasn't been published yet in America. Have you had any well, that, It hasn't
1: been published in the UK. It'll be published in the UK in another couple of weeks.
0: Is it a nerve wracking time? You're such oh, an old hand I, now, 18 novels, uh, 18 uh, books.
1: I told you I want to be liked.
0: Hmm? Um, no, it's
1: always a bit nerve wracking and it's hard to know how people will read you and what they'll think. Uh, and it's certainly more pleasant to be liked than to be disliked.
0: Do you care anymore? I mean, because you must be very confident. You have all those prizes I mentioned at the beginning.
1: Yeah, I, I'm probably the most secure person here, to, <laughs> here, to, here tonight. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on, no. Do you do still care about that? Of course. And, and, and also, yeah, what's the point of doing anything if it isn't risky or uncertain? You're not going to do anything that's worth doing if you're not
0: uncertain
1: yes. about whether you can do it or not. And, um, and then if you're doing something that you're conceited enough or, or, or mad enough to think hasn't been done before, you don't know how it's going to be received or what people are going to say. And you'd much rather that they got some pleasure or enlightenment from it. You know, you'd much rather not be told you 're a wanker, you know it's just nicer <laughs> to live that way uh, so yes i
0: yes no <laughs> yes no <laughs> um, no one well that that is the microphone there if you'd like to just start us off. You mentioned before that it took you ten years to become a writer, and I think um certainly in the, in the instant time that we live with all the social media and IT how do you make someone um, or give them the conviction that they've got to stick at something for 10 years in a time that is you know 10 years is a long time these days.
1: Well you know what 10 years was always a long time <laughs> and you know it, it, it was, a, it was a, an, an unbelievable amount of time and if somebody had told me at the age of 21 it was going to it would take a writer ten years. I would have said, "Yeah, well, probably," but not for me because that didn't wouldn't ap- apply. I, it would have been intolerable for me to think it was going to take ten years. Um, awful. And and I, I and I don't think that. And I, and I take your take your point about about the jittery instant nature of the present time and and it and so on. But. Uh, Writers, you know, people, people just want to be published and they want to have their book published and they want it to be recognised. And so they are impatient for that. Uh, somehow or other, you've got to be, have a personality defect that allows you to get through, I think. <laughs> Is
0: there anyone else you'd like to ask a question?
1: There's a very good essay, actually, by who was my, a man who was my first American editor, a man called Ted Solitaroff. And the essay, is, I think, is called Ten Years in the Cold.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's about the period, about uh, he as an editor dealing with young writers and how they are going to survive through those ten years. So that's, his ten years happened. I had taken ten years when I met him and then read that essay. Um, so it's hard to survive. It's hard to stay alive. It's hard to keep the hope. Alive during that time, I can think. Of, I think of uh, um, a student of mine who was a late life sort of student, in the sense that he was late 30s or early 40s when he when he was a, became a student, and his poor wife had put up with him and his ambition for many many years, and in the course of him graduating and then going on to publish a book. Their marriage broke up because she couldn't bear it anymore. And she rang me when he was published, because it was sort of it was sort of like I think she felt she'd been wrong. And she weeping on the phone and saying, How could I have known? How could I have known? And I said, You really couldn't have known and I didn't know either. And but how awful for her, you know, I mean I think that really wasn't the heart of their problem. But how awful to, to, to have spent all those time and all those menial jobs and all of the things she did to hold him up. Yes. And she'd finally had enough. And I don't sort of blame her either.
0: But... Well, a difficult... Uh, writers, but, you're not telling me writers are hard to live with. <laughs> <laughs> I would have asked you a question about, about the books. I imagine this would have been very hard to live with. Is that you... Um, that, that, We've been talking about Felix Moore, who's the journalist who's, who, who tells this story. But Gabby Bailey, there is a great love affair which happens between her and the, the, the young man, mm. Frederick, with, who teaches her how to hack, basically. Mm. And um, it is one of the standout uh, accomplishments of the book, it seemed to me, was that you make coding one sound incredibly interesting and beautiful and you describe the the gorgeous and and the elegance of the code, this perfect solution in in an imperfect world and then you actually make it sound like you understand it. Mm. How much coding did you learn?
1: None. (laughs) Well, if I wanted to really, I mean that's a really serious, and also I don't think I'm even intellectually suited to it. but. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to people um, and I read a lot and once often just looking for in all the reading as sort of the it's, it gets dull and boring and also f- you can feel the falsehood of something that's been researched so you drop something in that looks like you I know what it is. But people who do write code, you know there's lots of them, and they write and talk about it and occasionally you get a glimpse of what they feel about it, the, the, the aesthetic quality of having got a really complicated problem and expressed it in a really simple way. And that, that's a really saddest Well, one doesn't, need to, one doesn't need to be able to write code to respond to that, one just needs to spend a lot of time listening and figuring out what those people feel. And then the, you need people like that to read what you've written, which I did. Uh, And none of them ever squabbled with any of this, but they certainly... My guy, my deep-throated Google, certainly read the book three times and did. It was always saying, things like, never going to happen. No, not like that. No, couldn't. (laughs) Couldn't. Uh, and and, No, wrong. And and through that process with his tolerance, I learned to write a novel that was acceptable to somebody like him who'd grown up with it. Uh, But it's like... You know, Ned Kelly rode horses and I had a very brief experience with horses and, but I had, to, I had to write something that was going to work for people who loved and lived with horses all their life and I, so you have to be able to do that.
0: Well, I, you actually compare them, the code, the code to, Brank, it's like Brancusi's Bird in Space. Elegant Solutions to Complex Problems. I mean, that's a pretty high-grade comparison. So I completely believe that you'd fall in love with the elegance of the
1: code.
0: No. no I, I fall in love with just the... being a
1: writer. ...with the notion of understanding the one aspect of the emotional satisfactions of coding. I, I wouldn't presume... I mean, I work... One always works in novels within what the, the, the little corner that one can find out and one can be true to and from which the reader can expand. So if that's so, then the the reader fills the world with that information Uh, and it works and it works for, I hope, for for people who code as well. Um, I think the the, the particular path uh, Gabby and Frederick take take into hacking is very peculiar and certainly in no way typical, but it suited what I wanted to do. they begin with a text adventure game called Zork, which was already old-fashioned and out of date by the time they, they get to it. But it suited me for various reasons and I think I covered myself off OK. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I was convinced. I was absolutely convinced. Um, I would now like to invite you one if you... Oh, there is. I beg your pardon. I didn't see you there. Please. Yes. It's all right. I have a, an invisibility shield. Um, Was there a a small second when you attempted to do the Julian Assange biography, or was it survival that made you say no?
1: Well, that's a sort of a a false either or, really. (laughs) Um, I'm really a really, really bad journalist. And I really don't have the skill to do that. I couldn't have done that. so, yes, I'm a writer, yes, I'm Australian, yes, I was passionate about it, but, you know, the, a, a writer like I am, a novelist, has to be in control of the material. The victim of a, of a memoir or a biography is desperately trying to be in control of their life and the, 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 and the, and the victim, the person, the subject of, of the book almost always loses. Uh, and I was sort of thinking, yeah, you know, watch a worm, you know, resisting the hook, you know. Well, so I, I figured this was a bad idea anyway. It was one that, I mean, that's always my joke about, about two control freaks. The person being written about is trying to control their life. Yes. And the novelist wants to control the world. So does isn't. So, no, not for a second. And survival, I don't know what the, the issue of survival would really be. Uh, Survival, because what? I'll be assassinated.
0: <laughs> no, bad publicity.
1: Bad publicity. Sorry, I can't even see where the. the it's up here. It's up here. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's up there. <laughs> oh, bad publicity? Oh. Well, I don't know. I mean, these things get twisted all sorts of ways, don't they? When something you do is sort of political to that extent.
1: It's a- it's a terribly ris- risky, risky game, yeah.
0: And as uh, it, more to the point what happened is uh, I think it was Andrew O'Hagan in the end who... No, Who's a great writer. Tr- who got R- the Poison Chalice. Exactly, a wonderful yeah. writer and a really good uh, non-fiction writer. Yes. So... So he
1: was the right person for the job, mm-hmm. but Assange was, was a very slippery one. And uh, he wrote a wonderful piece in the, in, in the London Review of Books... Uh, uh, yes. about uh, ...about writing, yes. about
0: Assange. About, yeah. yes. Um, so you clearly admire what he does, but it's sometimes hard to admire who yeah. he is. Yes, oh. uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask about how you felt about the films that were made um, for your books, and whether you were able to let go of control in the film ad- adaptations. Mm.
1: Uh, I think. I think it's really. A, I mean, a, a novelist would be insane to think that they could control a movie it 's not the same thing anyway um, it's, novels are not always intensely dramatic works, and films are a dramatic form. Books are not in the past anyway were printed on paper and type and films are made from light and electricity, so they 're just different um, i 've I've generally the, the only time I thought I could control it which is very ignorant and stupid and arrogant, you can only, you have to be young enough to think this, was that I wrote the the screenplay for Bliss uh, with the director and I thought, well, this will all be fine because I know the director will shoot the screenplay and I was happy with the screenplay. But sort of what I was sort of forgetting is that, you know, between what's on the page and what is actually made in the film, the director's politics, for instance, could be could play a role in that, which didn't occur to me, and and various things like that. So um, I thought I could control that. I couldn't. Um, I, ever after, uh, I've said, "It's yours to break and make." Like I, I remember with Gillian Armstrong, I guess it was in New York before Oscar and Lucinda. We we did some things around publicity, sort of things. And, I, and people would ask, you know, what I felt about it. And I said, well, when I wrote the book, I had the right to fail. So I give Gillian that right too. <laughs> and Gillian would say, and the right to succeed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um And the last question up there, thank you.
1: Good evening, and thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jennifer. Um,
0: Selfish question. What books, what current, what recent books inspire or encourage you to read more?
1: Mm. Well, the books I'm reading at the moment are mostly by dead people uh, and they thrill me. I mean, and, 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 and for a you know, full confession, I have an iPad, which I find excellent for reading in bed, <laughs> and I think it's because my eyesight's sort of worse. But it's bright, and I can see the words, and not wake my wife up. So that's good. And and I'm, I've read an awful lot of Conrad, uh, who always thrills me and sort of and, and sort of you know lifts the level of the game and what is possible. And and I've also been re- re- reading um, oh God. Let's uh, see, this Iris Murdoch. Iris, Murder, Iris yeah. Murdoch, you uh, told me. Yes. And I've, got, and who's an unlikely sort of writer you might think for me to like, but I admire in so many different ways. And sometimes you know she bores me a little bit, and I put the book down for a couple of days. But then I always go back to it. And and uh, and I've I've spent been reading again because uh, we seem to have lost them in a moving house. Uh, the little little novels of Jean Rees, uh which she you, you know which are really courageous and really beautifully written. And you have this sort of single uh, woman living in Paris. Uh, they're, all, they're all quite alcoholic, all of them, and quite lonely, all of them. Uh, they're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful books. And, and,
0: and, and the fact that all of them are dead authors, well, does I, that I, have I, anything I'm to do with naked. your competitive streak? <laughs> well,
1: there was a writer I really loved and he died. Um, W.G. Sebald was somebody I just admired beyond. And when I met him, I, I went to dinner. With I, I couldn't even speak. I was, I was like a teenager. I just couldn't even think what to say to him. And then he was dead a week later, so I was so sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah there's the, the, there, are, there are lots of living writers I like. But just at the moment, to, I, to not be part of the ongoing conversation about... Contemporary literature is my privilege, and I will just feed on... I'm feeding on these things, and I want to go... I don't want to go to feed on something and then be disappointed and have quibbles, and you know, I just want to read to be enthralled and to be elevated by great artists, and it's more, more efficient for me to... And I'm, not going back, I'm going back often to read things I've read before. Yeah. Um, it's thrilling.
0: And just to go out on a high, I would actually like to remind you... Um, The the book you the current book by the living Australian that you have just read and you said you were really enjoying um, was this House of Grief.
1: Oh, Helen Garner, I'm so sorry I didn't write you. I had had the manuscript in New York at a time I think I wasn't meant to have it, and I thought she would have been really freaked out if I'd written her telling her that I'd read it and I loved it. Creepy, yeah. But yeah, but she's 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 a great. And that's a brave and brilliant book. And uh, it's, yeah, I'm, as they say, big fan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, listen, um, it's been lovely to have you here tonight. Thank you so much, Peter Carey. And please, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And for those... I did, the, I did this back to front. didn't I? You're going to have to clap again now. Um, uh, for those who would like to buy a copy of this book, as I said, I've read it a couple of times, it's, um, it's a great read. And uh, it's provocative, but it's very funny as well. well it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. It's incredibly uh, cheap. Peter <laughs> will be out um, signing books for you. Thank you so much for coming in this evening and love you to have your company. Good night.
1: Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.